Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Snark Monkey episode number 23 with Austin Winsberg. I'm going to try and keep this quick because we cover a lot of territory, Austin and I. He is a very talented, very funny writer, producer in television, as well as on the Broadway. Uh, on the Broadway? Um, I was recommended, Austin, by uh, a former Snark Monkey subject, Bob Cushell, another very funny, very talented eh, eh, uh, writer-producer in television. He said that Austin would be a great guy to talk to, and part of the reason was because Austin... At a very young age, 26 or 27, was given the job of running a show on network television, a show he pitched and got sold and ran for two seasons with some very frustrating processes along the way. And he talks about that quite a bit. He has certainly continued to do very well for himself since then, but it's a it's a good story, starting from the mean streets of Brentwood, California, uh, college... <laughs> college on the mean streets of Providence, Rhode Island, a little bit of Catskills musical theater summer camp in the midst of that, uh, some finger-banging, John Stamos is involved. Not not a, not in the finger-banging, let me... Well, I don't think so. I don't know. You'll have to listen to find out, won't you? And a lot of stuff in between. And also coming full, full circle to realize a dream, I guess, of putting a musical... On the Great White Way. We cover all that and more, and he gives you some really practical advice in terms of breaking into the business, despite the incredible frustrations of trying to do something creative in a world that sometimes doesn't know what that word means. Pretty great stuff. And also the search for happiness. Oh, God, we do cover a lot, don't we? We find the meaning of life here. It's Austin Winsberg, and we laugh a lot. Very, very funny. you got to check this one out. Snark Monkey number 23. Enjoy. It will pick up practically everything you say. Fantastic. So if you want to mutter under your breath... About me or about oh, Bob Cashel. Yeah, see, the, I heard every second of wow. that. Do we want to get the big rift between you and Bob Cashel out of the way? Just kind of. No, there's obvious. No, there's something. Yes. Are we starting? Yeah, we started. When did we start? No, but like seconds ago. <laughs> Well, I thought I was going to get an introduction or something. You, you will. You'll. I get thought it. you were going to play a little of a uh, little Bette Midler for me. Boy, from the a distance. People are so, so yeah, in show business. They're so used to this kind of constructive format. In. I yes. just thought you were going to play me in. No, there's going to be music. There's going to be a little introduction. I basically here's what I do. I don't know I, if you know anything about me. Though. What I, are you going to say? But I in the see. Intro? I give you an introduction after I've interviewed you. Oh. And after I have an impression of you. Uh oh. But not while you're around. 
I and you can only find out about it after the fact. Well, then I will, I will stop trying so hard and just be way more laid back so you can have uh, just nice and positive things. <laughs> that guy... Big personality, I, trying way too hard. <laughs> Very Bob Cushell of him. See? Yeah, that's you see right. what I did? It's I brought become, it back to you. Exactly. And that's the way people talk about it. It's, <laughs> it. He's become a descriptor. Oh, wow. That's way too Bob Cushell. What? Descriptor? Yes. A descriptor? Is that a word? I, You're the writer. I don't know. Austin, I respect uh, it. I, uh, for one, Bob Cushell said that I would have a fascinating conversation with you because you're talented, you're funny, and you are one of the... I believe he put it annoyingly youngest people to ever get a start in television and and have some success at it at a young age. Uh, yes, Is maybe that one or accurate? two of the, one or two of the things he said may have been true. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I did. I, I think my one of my my dubious claims to fame was I had my own TV show on ABC. I think at twenty six or twenty seven. So I think it, I may have been the youngest showrunner in ABC history. It's done a lot for my career since then, clearly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, so but I, there was, I think there was a moment major. in time where I, I was the young. I've certainly I'm certainly the youngest or one of the youngest showrunners. And that ever. show was. Called Jake and, Jake Progress, and Progress, and that was on ABC for a couple seasons. John Stamos, John Stamos. Yeah, and that was TV's a John that was Stamos. a nice show. That was a good show. Thank, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I watched that. I can tell you all the. I mean, if you want to spend an hour just on that, I can tell you all the machinations of everything that happened through that process. Oh, we're going to know because that's you... a fascinating a development insight into the TV broadcasting business. We're going to we're here for four hours, so I Great. think we can Perfect. cover it. Where uh, you are from, Southern California. I am, yes. L.A. native, born uh, and raised. It's weird how many of those I talk to because I, it, it, L.A. has the reputation of people being from somewhere else everywhere here. And I am one of those. But yeah. it, it, it's, but there are way more natives and way more people in the entertainment industry. And do you, who and do you find that here. those natives are actually sometimes more normal than you would expect? The normal in quotes, but I mean, yeah. you know, like you've—I've always been a defender of LA as it's not the, the it's not the cliche phony. I mean, the entertainment business is a huge part of what happens here, and only people in the entertainment business hang out with people in the entertainment business. Right. I mean, almost everybody has a relative who was like a set decorator, or yeah, he worked in construction and he was over at Warner Brothers or whatever. But very the the percentage of people who actually are involved in entertainment because it's such a huge area. I mean, people work at factories and they work in offices and they work at the you know the 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 Kinkos and uh, you know it's a normal place. If you hang around normal people, you will find normal people. Right. If you just hang around entertainment types, then yeah, I would imagine you would probably have a bad taste of well, this place. You know, it's interesting because I grew up. With I was a bit of a child actor, and I also grew up, you, you know, I went to private school, and I had friends whose parents were big in the industry, and my best friend growing up was a famous child actor. And Who was that? Fred Savage. Oh, wow. So Fred, right. Fred Savage was maybe the biggest star, biggest child star when we were growing up. Right. And so even despite the fact that that was my life and I was exposed to that, we still had a very normal childhood. We still, we weren't going and doing blow off of hookers' backs and clubs <laughs> when we were 15 years old. We were going to like the lame restaurant down the street and seeing movies in Westwood. Like, right. You know, well, like, that's what like our life was very sheltered and very, as much of a normal suburban childhood that you could have growing up in Los Angeles. My kid went through the same thing. He went to the, he went to, private school in the valley and then went to notre dame and he as early as elementary school maybe third grade there were there was a set of twin girls i think in his class who would be gone several days a week because they were playing one kid 
on Days of Our Lives or something. It was not, it was not the Olsen twins. No, no it was not. Oh, boy, if that had only been. No, but my sister was in Tori Spelling's class in elementary school. There you go. And, like, we would notice certain things that would be a little different than what would maybe be the norm. Like, everybody would do their science projects in sixth grade, and they would come in with their little volcanoes or whatever. There was a Tori Spelling hologram that they brought in <laughs> for the class. And uh, also, right. I remember that I think for her, for her birthday party in sixth grade, she's looking outside at that painting... Uh, I believe Michael Jackson came and sang, hey, happy birthday. Oh, that's so, awesome. You know, there were there were those little sure. things. But, but even within that, it was like we didn't. Yeah, you weren't thinking in terms of. You, you live in Minnesota. And you're like, Michael Jackson came. That's cra- crazy. But we didn't think of life in a way that felt that different. I don't no, know. No, you were still growing up. You were still a normal with this normal kid and teenage problems. I, I yeah. get that. I, and that's my point about L.A. I, I mean, it, until you're embedded in entertainment, that's all that you ever do. And if you shun all your old friends right. only for those, you know, show busy friends, yeah. then you have a skewed perspective perspective on stuff. And anybody who comes out here specifically for the entertainment business, that ends up being all they hang around is other people who have right. that same thing. Now you, you, so you grew up in what, what, what area? What, what West part of, LA. West R- LA. Brentwood. All right. OJ land. All right. OJ country. Is that what they call it now? Did they change <laughs> yeah, the signs? Yeah, it's called, it's called OJ land now. <laughs> it's just for the TMZ yeah, no, tour. It's, that it's, comes it's a theme park. Uh, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> it's... <laughs> You can only be this tall. I have a lot of jokes in my there's head. There's a lot. There's something about... They don't feel topical anymore, so I, I, I'm not going to do them. <laughs> I don't know. We were out in the hallway discussing Judge Ito a couple of... And it went on for you, a good 15 you, you minutes. You think the OJ jokes are coming back? Is that what you're saying? I think so. Somebody Maybe it's time. A, Should we bring him back? Somebody made a reference to the fact that Judge Ito had a different... Uh, was it TV or radio station mug on his... Um, up, up on his, on his, uh, on his whatever, judges, whatever they, judges thing <laughs> table every day like like he was like he had sponsors I talk for a living you write for a living we can have, <laughs> have to the, the judge judges thing. table <laughs> bench the judges bench approach the bench yeah because it was televised he had a, like a different so he was like sponsored every like a, like a NASCAR it was yeah exactly he had That's a different mug up there with a with a different logo on it every day do you day. want to hear my one my two big OJ stories yes do you want to hear them do you have the fact that you have two of them is amazing <laughs> yes. the first is you know people say like you grew up in LA uh, you must have like amazing celebrity stories like celebrity run-ins or that kind of stuff one of my celebrity run-ins is I could think of like two people I, mean, I don't, I don't want to name the other one but I can think of like two people that were like not very nice to me when I asked for an autograph and one of them was I was in a liquor store with my mom when I was seven years old why well, I was in a liquor store I don't know but uh, <laughs> well, and I went I'm over, glad you added with your mom <laughs> and good. I went over and asked for an autograph from O.J. Simpson. He was he signed it, but he was not particularly oh. nice to... Who's not nice to, like, a seven-year-old when they ask for an autograph? Yeah, a kid and a football but star. But I remember thinking... And I don't... I, didn't, maybe, I probably didn't even know that he was the football guy. I probably just saw him in Naked Gun or something. But, oh, he was towering Inferno guy for yes. me. Yeah. So, but, but for whatever, my memory is that he was not particularly nice to me. Yeah. And the second was... Uh, but my, did he try to kill you? Yeah, so then he tried to slash <laughs> oh, my throat. He? Oh, wow. And then I ran out of the liquor store, but he didn't get there. And maybe that's why he was angry, because he didn't, he didn't really accomplish <laughs> and it. he harbored that resentment <laughs> yeah, for years. For a long time. Oh, bummer. So this is my second OJ story, <laughs> just because it all roads lead back to OJ. Somehow they do. Is that uh, my father is, uh, was an architect and an interior designer, and somebody had bought Nicole's, Nicole Simpson's condo uh, to like redo it, to live there. Oh, yeah. At, like a few years after she passed away, like the murder site, and my, they brought my dad in to, to do it, and he turned it down because he felt like there was bad... Juju. Juju around yeah. it. He didn't want to be associated with it. 
Ah, that's interesting. Wow. What did, what did your dad do? He was an interior designer interior mostly. Interior designer. A, a little bit of architecture, but more interior design. And your mom? Uh, a little bit of real estate stuff. Okay. She owns and runs a building. All right. So what, what kind of what kind of kid were you? Were you, uh, you know, class clown? Were you a uh, nerd that got beat up? Were you a jock what, what for any pick, reason? What are you picking up on? Uh, I, well, because <laughs> if you, you had to, if you had to guess. I think that you were, I think you were smart. Okay. I think you were, so Thank you hung you. with the smart kids. See, I always, people, when I classify myself, I never fit into that clique. I was with, I was the... I was the dumbest kid in the group of smart kids, is okay. how I like to put it. Okay. So I, I'm getting I, that vibe. I, yeah, <laughs> thank you. So I was able to kind of cusp into other areas. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, never a jock really, but I knew him and I made him laugh and that kind of thing. You're so, a floater. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I uh, uh, maybe a sociopath. Maybe I was just codependent. I needed to please everybody that was yes. around me. Well, that sounds um, like me. Had a lot of issues. Yep. Uh, but I would say you were a very smart guy. That maybe there was athletics early on in your life. Um, but you were, I don't think you were a full on nerd. I think you were liked and like a bull, at least at that point. And you, before it all went south. <laughs> yes. Uh, clearly you're not now. Um, and, and, but you were, uh, and maybe in drama because of the child, oh, because I mentioned thing? the child actor thing. So yeah. I get a little bit that way. Yeah. Not far off. I mean. The acad- athletics. I, mean, I played tennis. And that was like that was my main sport. Right. Maybe, maybe that's the, a little. That's a little bit of the Southern California thing. Like we played tennis. We all had to do something. You know, the Jews point. have to do something, and you know, like <laughs> we don't like contact sports, and so we would play tennis. All so right. I played some tennis. All right. And uh, Jews play tennis. All right. You know, that's no, I think I, I think I was. I, I I wouldn't say I was part of like the popular popular clique because uh, there was that that was sort of the the jocks and like the yeah. me, the mean girls. Really beautiful but, people. I was a I was a floater. I was friend. I, yeah. I was. I, it was important for me to be liked, and I was kind of you know. I always want from every my. I mean, this is the, the therapy coming in of like you know wanting to be liked by everybody. But yeah, so I was friends with lots of people. I had a core group of friends, but that I think that sort of ballooned out to being friends with lots of people in different groups. I was very active in the theater community at school. Yeah. I was in my school. I was a prefect, uh, which is kind of like being senior class president like i was in, we would run the assemblies and be in charge oh, wow. of like the prefect is yeah. that co- a common term that's at my high school that's it was called it sounds like european like something you know, out of some sort of i feel like it's like a like a boarding school thing or something like that or maybe, maybe there's a european okay. quality to it but for whatever reason my school had four prefects which would be the guys who were in charge of student council and running the assemblies and so but you have to get voted on for the school to, to be that so right that was the school saying we accept you you know we pat you on the back i had a similar thing i was uh like a president of National Honor Society or something, you had to get up and make a speech. Uh, and I remember making people laugh. And so I, that, I honestly believe that's why I got the job, job, um, <laughs> w- which I promptly reigned over the National Honor Society, you know, membership and did nothing. I don't think I did anything. Really? But it made for a nice letter on my jacket I at the end see, of the year. I see. I did a lot. Were you very active? <laughs> oh, very active. I was very lazy. Very active. I believe the year that we were prefects. Uh, I believe that we started the school carnival that year that's still around. I believe wow. there was some sort of talent show night that may have been created that year by us that might still be around. Did so, you have a cause? Were you trying to uh, invoke change in the uh, school was, charter as a as a, an active prefect? Uh, Do you have a mission, a vision? 
Yeah, you know, I was very concerned about poverty and <laughs> world peace. No, you weren't. <laughs> no, I mean, my mission. My mission. My, uh, <laughs> the carnival. The <laughs> carnival and the talent show. We were raising money. No, uh, my issue was, you know, I had to be in front of the assemblies a lot. So yeah. my issue was trying to make people laugh and entertain. And I actually wrote certain things for those assemblies. And one of those things I kind of got known. I mean, this is senior year, but one of those things I kind of got known for was like writing skits and sketches and yeah. stuff like that that would be at those kind of assemblies. But the, And I, I bring this up because that's. That's such a formative time because it really does kind of – college defines you in a certain way, in a different way, and we're, we'll get to that because you do, you went to Brown, and that's a completely different experience than you grew up with. Certainly. I would imagine that was by design. You wanted to yeah. transplant well, that really, yourself. That really stems from the other thing that was really kind of life-changing for me, which was camp. So I always went back to east to camp every summer. Oh, wow. Uh, starting in eighth grade. If, you have family back east? Nope. No? Nope. So, oh, okay. I think my parents had an awareness, and I must have had this awareness too, that I was going to end up in the entertainment business. I started reading Variety when I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I was like a walking IMDB before there was IMDB. What Now, I, with, with parents who had apparently zero connection yeah. to entertainment, what, what spurred that on? It was me. Who were the? What were the? What were you watching? What were you seeing? Old movies well, or as a comedian? I mean, this, or no, I mean it probably. I, I mean, I was watching a lot of TV back. You know, when I eight, ten, twelve years old, Three's Company, mm-hmm. Different Strokes, mm-hmm. Growing Pains, Webster, those kinds of shows. Golden Age, <laughs> Quantum Leap, Miami Vice. You know, these are the shows that kind of pop into my head. All like this, Knight Rider, yeah, hugely influential stuff. But it was that was none of which holds up. By the way, how dare you? <laughs> All right, those were my formative years there, and those were the three, honestly though of all those. I mean, I loved the two things that re- the two shows that really were my thing that I was a little obsessed with were Three's Company yes. and Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo was another big thing for me when I was a kid, right there with you. And then the one that really transformed it for me, which showed me the power of television, my obsession with how TV could be more of a conversation, more of a cultural thing, was Twin Peaks when that came on. Oh, okay. So I was like in eighth grade when Twin Peaks came on. So you on. turned a little corner there with something that was totally off the grid from what you were used to growing up. Yeah, yeah probably. I mean, in, yeah, and just in terms of sort of the extended storytelling of that, mm-hmm. and like I got I got roped into like those, like I read like the diary of Laura Palmer. Oh, I yeah. was like, they didn't have message boards, but if they had, I would go to whatever the equivalent of message boards were like, I would write down notes during, I, and I wasn't nervous. Like this, well, that I was wasn't one like of one fir- of those like kids who was like you know like. I, but yeah. I was obsessed with who killed Laura Palmer. Well, no, that was one of the first shows that ever had this kind of ancillary, um, yeah, life it, to it. Yeah, exactly. That 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 grew out of that, um, which just enhanced that that feel. It was pre-internet in a way that you know there was no website to go do and, and kind of you know join right. message boards like you were talking <laughs> right. about. But, so, but somehow but I would find things and, I, and there was like I remember there was like one other guy at school who also went into the business who we would like meet the day after Twin Peaks and be like and talk theories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was the thing we would do. But I remember I could only find a tiny percentage of people who were into that show, but the ones that were were ridiculously passionate about it oh, in, yeah. in the most in-depth way. Yeah, I yeah. like I was very very involved. I remember my sister like went out to Seattle and brought me back like a t-shirt from the town and <laughs> again, this is a this is, I wasn't like a Star Trek kid or like a Star Wars kid who really collected that stuff, right. but like my little pieces of Twin Peaks were like so important to me. Yeah, yeah. But prior to that, I mean cuz this was before this, I started I think I saw kids on TV when I was 5 or 6 or 7 years old and said I want to do that and I made my mother go out and get me an, an agent. When I so was acting specifically was kind it's, of the first. It started with acting. Focus. Yeah. yeah, it kind of started with acting and just the idea that there are kids who are actually like actors who get these parts who get to be on these sets. And so I think I was a bit of a ham 
and ob- not shy, and so, but not a great, not a good actor either, which was something I kind of learned as time went on. Really? Yeah. You Maybe did. I might be better now, but back then, because everything I did, I played to the back row. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was a very, very... You had a theatrical I had a bend. Very, I had a theatrical bend. And on top of that, <laughs> especially when it came to like theater acting and stuff like that, I was always thinking of my next line. Oh, yeah. So there was never... Not exactly living and, in the moment. And how, exactly. <laughs> and how I would say that line. Like, I'd already pre-rehearsed what word I would put the emphasis on. So I remember this, is a, this was a big moment for me as a, as a child actor, that Fred came with me to an audition in eighth grade for like, like an episode of Blossom. Fred Savage? Yeah, yeah, Fred Savage. So Fred Savage came with me like to an audition for Blossom or something like that, and all the other kids see Fred walking in and like he's like a god. And I remember he's and he was like going over my lines with me, my sides, and he I'm like reading it, and I'm, I'm like I don't know how I should say this side. Like why don't why don't you read it one time? He was so much better than me. <laughs> and not only was he better, but he gave like four different readings of the same line, where literally I only heard it one way in my mind. Right, and they were all great. Oh, every all, reading was completely yeah. like justifiable and interesting and different, and like told like a point of view and wrote, told something specific <laughs> about that character. All I heard was like, should the emphasis be on the the or the of? That's all I could think of. <laughs> so I could, I would always get like far enough because I was like competent enough that I would make it to the callbacks. I was like callback kid. So everyone was like, there's something about him. But then when they put me with like the real actor kids. Like I would audi- every audition I went on was against set like Seth Green. Seth Green oh, was on every audition I ever went on. Did you book anything? I Me. booked a bunch of commercials yeah. and I I got anything a- we would have seen. National stuff? I mean, yeah, like a Rice Krispies commercial, yeah. like what does your Rice Krispies say to you? You know, like a Ryder Trucks commercial, a Duncan Hines chocolate chip cookies commercial. All right, so you're making bank as yeah, a kid. Yeah, doing okay. You're bringing in some money. Okay. And then I, I got a couple guest spots on a couple TV shows. My other big claim to fame or my big, uh, my big wound as a child was I, I got fired from Punky Brewster. Uh, now, see, I saw this reference because I did do the research on you. Uh, beyond the IMDb, the, there is a reference. <laughs> I mean, you've probably told that story a lot before, but I, I, I not, need on, to, not on a podcast. I need to hear it. Okay, because so it, it seems like, honestly, and again, talking about another a, a different golden age of television, it seems like it would be hard to be fired from an episode you know, of Punky Brewster. One would think, <laughs> as a ten-year-old, too. <laughs> what does a ten-year-old have to do to get fired from an episode yeah, of Punky Brewster? You would Brewster? think they'd give a ten-year-old a lot of leeway. You would think. Yeah. So either a couple of theories here. Either oh, you don't know why. Well. I have a theory in my head of why I was yeah. fired. <laughs> Let's just say version one is I was so bad with my lines that they're like, we cannot make this kid work. But I think it was version two, which was, and this is a little bit of that other like side to me. First of all, I had a huge crush on Punky on Soleil Moonfry. Oh yeah. So whenever I was in a scene and like Soleil would be on one, Soleil would be like on one part of the set and I would be on the other. Somehow throughout the scene, I would figure out a way to like move close to her. <laughs> so I wasn't really following the so blocking. You ignored all blocking. <laughs> I ignored all blocking. The other thing was I distinctly remember the director telling me to like stand here for something, and I said something along the lines of like, "Wouldn't it be better if the camera was over there?" <laughs> <laughs> Something about how, and to this day, I, I still think maybe my camera angle was a little yeah, bit better. Yeah. And uh, and then I remember there was the dog Brandon. They had a right, dog Brandon. Right. I remember one day, like after the, after the run through or whatever, like I went over to the side of the stage and I started petting Brandon. And the and the, the and Brandon's owner was like, "The dog is not here for your personal pleasure." <laughs> oh no! So whatever I did, I really upset the people at the punkies and that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, well, it's also this. Here's a clear <laughs> indication that all that idea of wow, it looks like fun to be on TV, be a kid on. TV, yeah. then you're in a situation where you're going, 
oh, yeah, this is actually work, and not everybody here thinks of this as as much fun as I do. Like, it was a playground for me. Like, I get to flirt with Punky, I get to play with Brandon, (laughs) and I get to tell the director where to put the camera. Say a couple of lines, get a few laughs, and I'm out. Yeah, I guess that they didn't see it that way. So I think they fired me the night before they actually shot it. So, like, I must have been that bad. They're like, we got to bring in any other kid we can find. So they didn't cut the part. You saw the finished episode? No, I got got residuals for years and years after that. Because you had to go do the thing. And because I was still contractually paid out for the week or whatever. Oh. Oh, wow. And I was, I was, and I had a small part in the movie Ghost Dad with Bill Cosby, and, and Sidney Poitier directed that movie. Oh, yeah, Bill Cosby. Notoriously terrible movie. Terrible movie, yes. Yeah. Is that the way? Leonard's, I, I guess Leonard's Leonard part, part six. six is considered the, the, like, the pinnacle yes. of bad but Bill Ghost, Cosby Ghost movie. Dad was certainly not far behind on that yeah. list. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't even want to talk about Bill Cosby. We don't have to. No, let's not go there. <laughs> um, wow. So at what point were you thinking... Was this where the everything started to turn and you were like, maybe writing, maybe... Well, Ghost... I mean, Ghost Dad, I was in seventh grade. Yeah. So I think what started happening was I, you know, my agents and I <laughs> didn't see... I, no, I don't know. You know, like I didn't go out for that. I started not going out for as many stuff as right. I started getting a little bit older, as much stuff. Right. So and you're then, you're also in that awkward, geeky yeah, kind of so stage. Yeah. Like, so, you know, when I'm going like 13, 14, 15 years old, I think that we sort of... You know, the act, the auditions were more, more, more like 7 to 12, that age mm-hmm. range. And then I think the auditions started to slow down. And then I started getting more into school and theater and that kind of stuff. So I think I kind of even stopped going out for auditions by the time I was 13 or 14 years but old. But you're still doing plays. You're I'm still doing involved. plays. And then, yeah. so the, and then the big change happened when I went to a theater camp in the Catskills in New York called Stage Door Manor. Oh, and, I've heard of that. And I feel it's it's a, a famous theater camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they have a lot of illustrious alumni, which I can I can tell you some if you care. Uh, but that was really the first time where like theater and uh, being creative, not just with acting, like it started to sort of um, excite all different parts of my personality, my brain. That's uh, that place comes up all the time. And again, my my kid uh, has went to BU, studied theater there, and Stage Door Manor was something that a lot of his friends in that circle had been through and gone through. And yeah, there is a list of alums who have come from there that have gone on to be on stage and behind the scenes and, and directors, writers. I mean, there is something, it's it's fame for theater nerds. Right. You know? It's, yeah, absolutely. It's just, That's exactly what it is. It's an amazing experience. Absolutely. It doesn't always translate to working in the business, but it yes, is. Yes, but it does give you certain skills or certain confidence or certain something. I mean, the first summer that I went there, so that was just honestly, you know, I mean, credit to my mom. I said I wanted to be an actor when I was six or seven and we went out and got an agent. Like, she knew I liked theater and then she heard about this amazing theater camp. So they were backing you the whole time. Totally. Yeah, never never questioned your interest in that. No, because yeah. probably because, you know, it's like they tried. I, I mean, when I was younger, like, <laughs> I don't know how embarrassing I want to get. But, like, they got me a sports coach when I was, like, nine or ten years old. <laughs> you laugh. Because they wanted me to be more, more athletic. And <laughs> instead, I'm, like, coming in after school and eating, like, Doritos and Coke right. and, like, you know, watching cartoons. And they're like, we want them to be a little bit more active. So, like, they would do things to try to get me to be more active. Did or, they like, have an idea of what profession they thought maybe you should do? I think they always knew I was going to do something arts or entertainment yeah, okay. related. The fact that I was that I had such a that I was such a lover of television. It was obvious that, from that I, again I'm, again like what other ten or twelve year old do you know that's like reading Variety and I can tell you every movie that's on product in production every TV show that's on any hour on any network yeah. was really that really and, if most parents are just paying attention it's pretty clear because right. I mean not that the kids choose their profession that early necessarily but usually their habits and what they gravitate to if you're really paying attention and you're just not ignoring the obvious yeah and I think they were really good at if I showed any kind of interest in any specific thing trying to 
boost yeah. that. Yeah, Bolster encourage it. it. Encourage it. You know, I played the violin for six weeks. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> that I didn't like the way my chin and the, the angle was, so that went away. <laughs> so I think we had a drawer of, like, my parents' broken dreams. You know? <laughs> Things that they wanted for me that I would express this much interest in. Yeah. And that it would just For die. years, your mom would go in there and open that yeah. and just kind of caress the Cry violin. a little bit. And, 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 and like, here's the, the football we tried yeah. to get him to hold. Yeah, and ironically, so I have a four-year-old son now. Oh. And uh, we, he has too many toys, we feel like. And he, he always, he doesn't really understand yet that, like, gifts are, are, are that's a special oh, thing. That's yeah, something yeah. we get every day. So he, his closet's getting kind of filled with toys. And we said to him, listen, if you want any new toys, you just, you have to take one toy out of your closet. Uh, just one thing. And if you give us that, that we can give away to another child, um, then maybe we can get you something else. So he goes, okay. So he goes in there the other day, and he's in there for, like, five minutes. And he finally comes out and he goes, I found, I found the thing that we can give away. And I'm like, great, what is it? And, and he hands us. A football. <laughs> and it was like the one masculine thing in the whole closet. Yeah, this is no good. I won't no be playing with this. this. Football. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's oh, my, that's my son right there. Fall from the tree. It's fine. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Um, so, anyway, stage door. Yeah. Well, yes. it, it, coming out of that, so that was... That was something that flipped the switch for you. Totally. Yeah, so, so I would go there. I mean, there were a few things about that camp. First of all, there were... 200 girls at that camp and 50 boys. Sweet. And let's say 25 of those boys were really nerdy or too young. Let's say 10 or 15 of those boys at that time were gay, but gay wasn't out. There was not an out thing. Now that camp, I think, is a lot more homosexuality. The the, the whole right. it, it, be, it became a much they more. Yeah, they weren't openly expressing that. But it was. Yeah, I mean, we're talking 1990, 91, 92. So right. it's a period of time where like even like we knew that there were certain boys that were like something was different but we didn't really sure. know what that meant sure you always right. understood that and they tended to gravitate toward each other maybe yeah. a little bit but again we didn't really have an understanding really at that age of what right. that meant and i'm talking like ninth tenth eleventh grade around that time sure and but so that left like 10 mediocre jewish boys <laughs> to get the leads <laughs> in all the plays and have these like 200 like budding experimental young actresses right who are like in love with all these like jewish boys oh who are suddenly God. playing like you know proctor and crucible and like i played puck in midsummer night's dream sure. and Things, george and, and Things town. got close and so, intense, and you were around each other yeah, all and the it's time. Very, and, and you know, the amazing thing about that camp is they'll do like ten or eleven plays every three weeks. So every kid in that camp is in a show, and you're also taking classes. And so just by like being in the shows, being in the classes, and having this free time together, it just creates this like amazing creative free love kind of environment. <laughs> it's the closest I could imagine in my head to what the '60s were like. The except of love. we're just like making out with each other. There's nothing more than like kissing girls. Apparently, but, that's all 1967 was, was that really. really? You, yeah, you, you probably. I I picture did. a lot more fingering. <laughs> <laughs> can I not say that on here? No, you can What's, say anything you want, actually. I don't know what the word is. Am, no, am I allowed to swear on You here? can say anything you want. Uh, I picture just a tons of finger banging. I'm assuming no brown acid is part of that either. There was no drugs. Okay, no drugs. Right. So that was a weird. I mean, that was amazing. Like, you think theater camp? Like, I imagine the counselors, when the kids would go like go down for the night, they would just go out and get, like, shit face. But, like, there were there were no drugs. Right. or just, like, a bunch of, like, right. 15-year-olds, like, playing guitar. and like. How have see, you not written that? That show, by the way, everything you just described. I really should. I yeah. mean, the other thing too is, like, I just remember like going up on the bus and like everyone's instead of singing camp songs, they're singing like Sondheim. Right. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. But I didn't even know what Sondheim was when I went there. Like I wasn't like a theater nerd like that. Right. But when I got to that camp, suddenly I was exposed to a whole world of theater and musical theater that was so not my life back at my high school. Right. 
And the other thing, too, is like you'd go to that high school that was also, you know, like talk about popular or not popular. Like I would go to Stage Door, get the leads in all the plays. I had all these girls and girlfriends and all this attention. And then I'd come back to Brentwood where I'd be like a normal kid again. Right. And like, it's and Brentwood at my high school, Stage Door would do amazing productions with amazingly talented kids. And I would get these great parts and then I'd get back to Brentwood and I would be like the third pirate chorus guy in Peter Pan. <laughs> like I couldn't get a part in my high school. But somehow at Stage Door, I did very well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing when you get around people of like mind that can firm because any kind of high school experience unless you're in some kind of like arts or it's specifically vocational type school you you get that wide range of types and people and right. interests or whatever um i i went to film school at usc it turned out ended up in radio and podcasting but that's a story we don't need to go through therapy for me right I'd now i'd like to hear it i'm happy okay. to be your therapist okay we'll turn the mics off and i'll cry <laughs> and you'll hold me i'll cry with you um but the moment you get around people of like mind oh i i had a similar experience with the uh, northwestern it has a high school institute they do during the, the chair summer. program the chair which program. i also did did you yes okay so i was in the radio tv film what they call it at the time they've changed the RTF. name of that yes, yes. Um, I was there. I was in the theater department. Theater department. But I can talk about that versus Stage Door, too, because that was interesting to compare those two. Oh, interesting. Yeah, totally. Yes. But once you get around people, a lot of kids your age of like mind, and you realize I'm not the only one that is that type and yeah. can talk that, it is mind-blowing. And, you know, I, I still, and the way you talk about Stage Door and those experiences, it's still so vivid because... There's just all these synapses firing 100%. all the time. And to this day, I mean, I just went to a stage reunion in L.A. a couple of weeks ago. And all when you see and it's weird. I don't know what it's like with you for these camps. And I don't know how much camp is interesting to the listeners. I, but, no, but it's part of but, who you are. I but mean, when you see another person who went to that camp, there's just that Im- immediate connection. Yeah. And you, you went to stage. You went to stage. There's just that point where you guys understand what that means. And you have that bond with each other. I'm still in touch with some of those people and that was 5 weeks one summer right. before my senior year. Right. And and it's yeah, I still feel connected to them in that way. Yeah. It's unlike any other experience I've and had. And I know so several I cherubs who are out here. Now, now now why would you what's well, what's your uh, comparison? Wait, first first of all, just to tie it all together, um writing started I think in a real way because of stage door. So my best friend at Stage Door Manor was a playwright, and he was a young playwright, and he was write, writing plays and winning playwriting contests all around the country. So by the time he was like 18 years old, he was like a young Neil Simon. He had written oh, like wow. 75 plays. And he would send me his play, and a lot of them were like one acts, but like, you know, 15 page, 20 page, cute, funny, heartfelt one acts. And he would send me these, and I would read them, and then I started thinking, oh, I could do that too, because I always had a little bit of a writer thing on the side, um, but I didn't actually think of what that meant. And so I started writing plays really because of him, and started winning this LA Young Playwrights Festival, which I won five times before I was 19 years old. But that all started because of my friend from Stage Door, who was a writer, and kind of got me into that young playwriting world. Oh, great. So there, that's just that's the writer link, if you wanted that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, so when you decided you were going to head off to college, was that the angle you were you were going for? When you... When I, um, no, I mean, it, it was still theater arts. Still theater. Yeah, so I was a theater major at Brown, but I took a lot of writing, creative writing classes mm-hmm. while I was there, and English classes and that kind of stuff, too. But, so, I knew it was something with an art, again, still something in the, the world of the arts, but exactly what was starting to get more and more defined by winning that Young Playwrights Festival a bunch of times. It's called the Blank Theater Company LA Young Playwrights right. Festival. Yeah. Um, they still and, have it going on right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, after, I was a, after I wrote for it, then I became a director and a mentor, and I've been involved with it for like 20 years now. Terrific. Um, so that gave me so much, a lot of validation and 
probably in ways that I wasn't getting from the acting. And also I started to see for the first time that I didn't need to be in front of the in, on stage or in front of the camera in order to feel that way, that there was something about, because I directed a couple of things, I think at stage door two and starting to do the writing. I started to realize that I was getting more of a satisfaction from the creative. So that was an easy transition for you. You didn't, you didn't. Yeah, I mean, I still acted all through college right. and I still did the plays and all that kind of stuff. But within that, I also started writing more plays and started directing some stuff. So I, it started to expand out beyond just the acting, which was where it all started. Right. All right, so let, let's get you to college, or this will turn into a four-hour discussion. Oh, you don't want to hear the chair versus stage door debate? Um, <laughs> That's not fascinating to anybody beyond you and me. <laughs> no, let's keep going. Let's keep it no, moving. No, no, moving. no. no, no. We'll do, no can no, you no, tell no. me in a nutshell? No, you know, what was interesting was that uh, Northwestern, the chair program was a conservatory. It was very, right. very strict and rigid, and you had to be at this thing at 8 in the morning, and mm. you were out till 10.30 at night, and they took it all very seriously. And, I, you know, this was at least the summer I was there, and they, they, they put on these plays, but it was a very academic approach to it all, where stage door had a kind of a, a looser, more fun approach. And at least for me back at the time, I'm not trying to talk badly about either of these programs, there was something about the lack of inhibition that was there at stage door that I feel like carried through in the performances and the actors and everything that happened at that camp. And I feel like the quality of those productions were really high, whereas the rigidness of the structure of that of the conservatory of that theater camp, having nothing to do with Northwestern on, on the whole, right. um, felt... I don't know what the word is. It felt um, restricting. It yeah. felt challenging. I didn't enjoy that process as much, and I also felt like the work wasn't as good. So I don't know what the I don't know why because the stage was younger kids and a little bit more freedom. Northwestern was a little bit older and a little bit more rigidity, but there was something about that rigidity of that program, at least on the theater side, for me, that felt uh, obtrusive or felt not comfortable. Well, I think different people respond to different. I know when when we were looking at theater schools for for my son. Uh, we looked at both types, uh, um, and BU and and he got into most of them. He, you know, BU and Rutgers and uh, Carnegie Mellon and all the conservatory style ones that had everything laid out year by year. He totally responded. He was like, "I need structure. I need to be told what." To-. We went up to Bennington in Vermont. Are you yeah. familiar with Bennington? Uh, yes. um, I was walking around Bennington going. Can I come here? Can, I mean, it was literally like, yeah, design your own. What, I mean, right. what? It literally, I think you get a degree in whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, that's and, Brown. Brown, you can design your own major. You can take you everything go. pass fail. So yeah, that yeah, speaks to a certain kind of personality type. Yeah, and and that the, nothing about that spoke to Alex at all because he needed to be at least now he's totally flipped that now that he's gotten that structure and he's like, I'm gonna do my own thing. And I'm you know what? Look, I believe my wife and I are having this conversation right now, mm-hmm. and I think this actually does tie into creativity and what we're all talking about. Yeah. But like, you know, you want to support your children and what they want to do. At the same time, I went to a college preparatory high school. Even my elementary school was very grounded in the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that you still need those fundamentals before you can go off sure. and do other stuff. Yeah, yeah. This actually ties me into a brown writing class story. Okay. <laughs> you like I'm just leading the... No, I like um, it. No, no, no. So I was in a writing class. So most of the writing classes that I took at Brown, everybody else in the class was writing, ex- like playwriting stuff, was writing experimental theater. Nothing nothing with characters and dialogue. I was like the one guy who was writing that stuff, and they hated me for it because they hated right. anything that was mainstream or, or, or commercial. Or, or remotely traditional. Yeah, right. like I took a, my intermediate playwriting class. I remember on the, on one of, my, one of my plays or one of my scenes, a teacher wrote at the end of the thing, like, you should be a TV writer. But, like, Damn. it was not a compliment. <laughs> right. <laughs> it no, was clearly but, like. But that, that, at that age. I remember in in film school, 
because I was the same way. I grew up with TV, and that, that, that mass appeal entertainment was what I wanted to do, what I went to school for. And yeah. I was at USC, which was touted think, as, yeah, you the know. Spielberg School the, and Lucas, the, the Lucas, Lucas and all yeah. that. And, all, all, and I, I, you could count on almost every screening, there was going to be the one incest story. There was going to be one suicide story. Right. There was just this heavy but drama. Was, at least we were 19, 20 years old. We didn't know But from at least that you crap. had stories. Like, everything in Brown was nonlinear and hypertext and <laughs> I didn't even know what it was, and like they would attack me. They really, this was what like the LA kid was not like because right. like I represented everything that was bad and commercial in their minds about right. coming from Los Angeles. Right. So I, every class I was at at Brown was a fight, and we could talk about what that was like. But what was interesting was in this particular class, so everybody was writing all these really experimental out there stuff, and most of it was really not good. But there was this one guy in the class. I wish I remembered his name. There was this one guy who everything he wrote that was very experimental and different was amazing, but. I firmly knew and believed somehow that that guy knew all the fundamentals, that he actually could write a normal screenplay or a normal story, but was choosing this as his way to tell, the, to tell it. Right, because he what, had already learned the structure and, and, and the basics of, of how to tell the yeah, story, the and then he started drama. to build on that. Right, so he was playing off. It's like Picasso. If you see early Picassos, you see these drawings that he did when he was 10 years old that were these still lifes or whatever that are unbelievable, and he was so far above and beyond that that he got bored and started changing it into geometric shapes or whatever, right. but he knew how to draw still life, and I felt like eight of the ten kids who were doing experimental stuff in the theater class didn't understand the fundamentals. But the one guy who knew the fundamentals who was still doing experimental was so far above all those other people. Yeah. So I do think there is you have to know the foundations of anything to, to then say, well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, whether you you have to appreciate the bare bones of what got that art form to where it got. Right. I mean, and, and I experienced the same thing. You know, I, we did a silly my Chris, uh, Chris Black was my uh, film partner who's working on a thing with uh, Kirkman, the, 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 uh, the Walking Dead, Dead guy, guy and, and, you know, is running some shows now. And we did a very silly little short film about Santa Claus getting shot in the middle of the night. Uh, it, great premise, perfect for a little 16-minute short, while other people were trying to do literally incest rape dramas <laughs> sure. in 16 minutes. We had this silly little conceit that we just... We had been shooting Super 8 movies forever uh, on our own. You know, when our, uh, he was in Toledo, Ohio. I was in Odessa, Texas, and I was doing World War II epics in our alleys <laughs> in, in Texas. Um, it was we, – we, we shot, only shot what we needed. We used the allotment of film. We got it edited in time. We met our deadline. We screened it. It was funny. And then we got accused of not taking ourselves seriously. By the teacher or by the by – by the, the, by the class, by the feedback. You had the entire Norris – cinema theater on campus give you written feedback on it and we got so much negative because we <laughs> didn't take the course seriously and I, it's the same thing it's like no we we really did i mean we right. wanted to make a good short funny right. film that was your tone and your voice and what you wanted yeah, to do we did exactly what we wanted to do well you know something has some of that maybe has to do with academia and and also being the that age hubris and, of that age yeah. of you know why why aren't you trying to break say, ground be, be important yeah and say I've, something important i've never been one to be inclined toward depth so that was never an <laughs> any, issue for me. No, no, not at all. Um, in fact, all Depth I'm going to is very overrated. I'm just going to edit out the Punky Brewster story out of Please. this whole conversation. That's all I'm going to release. Anyway. <laughs> Please, just, so that's how I want to be known. So the guy let's who got fired so let's Punky. get you out of Brown. Oh, we're done. Uh, we're done with Brown. Well, no, Stop. but ultimately, was it? Did you make it a positive experience, even though it felt like a struggle all the time? Did you did you get into a rhythm of letting getting people to recognize that you had? 
Um, Some ability? I think, I think Brown was challenging. Brown was very intellectual when I was there. Mm. It was very, very liberal. And not that I'm not liberal, but it was very, there's a lot of PC stuff going on. You, I remember I was in an English class one day, and the teacher said, does, does anybody have any announcements? And one person was like, uh, yeah, we have, uh, this group will be meeting in the quad at 5 o'clock today. And then another person raised their hand, like the socialists will be meeting over here, the communists <laughs> over here, the African-American stuff, the, the, you know, the neo-Nazis for Jesus. Like every, everybody had a group and a purpose. And so every well, no wonder your silly little TV sensibility wasn't playing <laughs> That's there. Oh, That's my God. Correct. So there was a part of me that felt uh, that, you know, had I gone to a place that was maybe a little bit more fun or maybe a place where that had a little bit more of a, of a dating life or a mainstream social <laughs> life, that maybe that would have been a more a more fun college experience. Look, dude, you you were getting all that finger-banging action <laughs> This is the up problem. At, yeah, yeah I got it out of my system manner. at Stage Door Manor. Yeah, yeah. So you, Brown was the way to not have any need, of that. Exactly. You needed a more intensive situation true. I needed, academically. <laughs> I didn't say I was doing the finger-banging. <laughs> And I don't think I said it about Stage Door Manor. Oh, I just assumed that you were getting a lot, lot of action. Listen, that's oh, come the on, like all the leads, all the leads in the place, and the pretty girls, and you guys are doing the close, intense scene work together. Oh, I don't think we're close. Enough. After... I don't think we're close enough for me to tell the finger banging stories. <laughs> I, I was just, I was making the leap that you were part of that action. So I just, I'm trying to give you a I little okay. credit. I did okay. I did okay. That's what, right. that's what right. I'm saying. What I was going to say though is. <laughs> In terms of Brad, you're asking about Brad. Right. I feel like, uh, no, I got a lot out of some of the theater stuff and a lot of the academic stuff, but I found the social life, at least at the time. And you're not exactly in the most exciting city in the world. Listen, well, Providence has gotten Prov- better since I've been there. Right. Like, I mean, there's, there's... there's a mall there now. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. We had to go to Seekonk, Massachusetts to see a movie and no one had a car. And <laughs> you couldn't really go into Boston because you take the train in, but the last train came back at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, so you if you were... wanted to go like clubbing in Boston, you couldn't really do it. I mean, it's not a small town, but it's weirdly isolated, yes. despite the fact that it's in this massive population center in New England. It yes. is this own little enclave that has its own It's own little island. Until the family guy, you know, yes. <laughs> Put it in prominence. Yes, and Seth MacFarlane had not done that yet when I was there, so it was not. I think we had Quahogs or whatever, however you call those. You know about that? Yes, Quahogs. That, Quahogs? Well, it's, that's the name of the the town. Well, uh, I think they're like clams, and they, right. they would serve them at restaurants. But I know that's like, that's like a thing of that show. I don't I don't watch that show. Enough. And it's oh, and it's apparently only available around uh, the coastline of Rhode it, Island. It might be. It's like a very Rhode Island specific. Thing. Well, okay, now we got to Google that. So let's get you out of Brown. So please, you graduated please. with honors. Uh, no, you were paraded with, out not, of not with honors. No, no. I remember going with my dad walking through day of graduation. There was like a cum laude line and a non cum laude line. And we saw some of my friends in the other line. He's like, "Why aren't you in that line?" I'm like, "Dad, I'm graduating from Brown. Isn't that enough?" <laughs> yeah, come on. Why don't you? Why don't you have the the, the talus on the rope? Oh wow, Dad! Oh, father issues. No issues with father. I oh yeah, no. I'm trying to live up to a reputation, huh? Uh, yeah, I want to make you cry at some point. We could go Barbara Walters if you yeah. want. Um, no, we don't have to. Uh, I'm having too much fun. So, but I but, can. I have a little bit of depth, so we could go there if you want. Yeah, okay, to. Well, we'll see. Um, you know, I had a long distance girlfriend for a lot of Brown. I think that kind of took my head and mind away from that place a lot. Right. Um, but it was, I, I remember it just being challenging, you know, it was challenging, but something kept me there. I didn't transfer. Right. And I think I was really uh, stimulated by the academics and stimulated by the theater scene. And I acted in a bunch of plays. I directed a big play there senior year. So I was very involved in the theater stuff at Brown. And I would imagine the sensibility of walking out of the door there is that, well, it's time to go to New York. It's that's where you go after you study theater there's probably at Brown. Some, there's probably some of that, except I had done internships for a few summers back in L.A. with Brown alumni mm-hmm. in the entertainment business. So I had worked at production companies. And having done two or three summers of that, 
I instant and knowing that that was something that I thought I wanted to do, I instantly. So you had much better connections back here right away. Yeah, but, but again, those connections were literally I had two or three connections because I had through Brown alumni, I had gotten these summer internships yeah. and working at production companies. And then I became and these two guys in particular kind of became like big brother mentor figures to me who I worked for, who one of them was a writer, one of them was a producer, but they worked together at the time. And I came back out to L.A. and I said, Do you guys know of any job stuff. And one of them knew that somebody was looking for an assistant at New Line at the time. So I got a job almost right out of school working as the assistant to the senior vice president of production at New Line. Uh, did you have uh, swimming with sharks moments there? Or yes. That, did you? Yes. God, wow, this is not, that is not a cliche. I mean, everybody I've talked to at a certain level in the motion picture industry that where there is that pressure and there's that money flying around and there is that guy who is that personality – there are way more of those than not. <laughs> the, the, those are those yeah. seem to be the I mean, rule. I, I mean, a... certainly not to the extreme of, of you know, physical abuse or whatever. But you do not get treated well in those assistant jobs. It was strong. I mean, especially since my boss at the time had also had worked for Joel Silver, and he had worked for I think a couple other guys who were of that ilk. So I think he grew up in that environment where. You sort of like you follow what you saw, and I think part there was a, a bit like of having a, the abusive dad, and you it, basically take on yeah, the traits I think, of well, that. I think you take on some of that hazing, and yeah. it also like it teaches you how to if you want to be one of those guys. Yeah, it teaches you. I mean, we would roll calls all day long, and we were do. I was on it. Like I very quickly, and that's not necessarily my personality. Like I learned how to function in a very uh, with a lot of product coming in, a lot of phone calls coming in, in a very high pr- productivity kind of way in that space. So, did you sense high stakes there? Or is that all just kind of created? Is that just well, what was an interesting illusion? when I was working at New Line? I was there uh, when Michael DeLuca was still there. Okay, so I was there t- kind of the tail end of the DeLuca reign at New Line, and I don't know if you know anything about sort of New Line at the time. It's before it was bought out by Warner Brothers, right? And there was still a feeling. This was kind of the tail end of it, but there was still that feeling that it was kind of its own independent rock and roll kind of. Yeah. it still had a. a no, they, had, they had a good run of some high-profile, successful small films, and that was that was I, what what year are we talking? What, We're talking like ninety-eight, ninety. I, I probably yeah. started 90, like ninety-eight, ninety-nine. So that is the tail end of, of of a truly kind of these independent outposts that were yeah they were jamming. Yeah, they, and DeLuca was, would come in in jeans and a t-shirt, yeah. and he's like running this company, and they're like everybody kind of wanted to work with New Line because they were making cool movies, and so there was kind of a cool there was not a corporate feeling to it at all. Right, and my boss like the year that I was there with him like he got. 10 movies made or something that year. I could list some of these movies for you. Some That's of them, incredible. Like, like some of them didn't come out or, or only got released on video or something, but the amount that but was they happening got, they and got to be around and they it, got made. They got greenlit and they got made and to sort of be there on the ground floor to see that process and see how it was happening yeah. was very eye-opening. In, in, I mean, in a good way, in a positive way, or just to, just Bo- both. to, to have an understanding of well, it? Well, to have an understanding for sort of how the system works. Right. And I think I got, you know, it's one thing to read Variety when you're a kid or Entertainment Weekly. It's another thing when you're actually there answering the calls and seeing the calls coming in from the agents and the producers and the writers and the stars. And then ha- seeing these, uh, they would fill out these reports where they would say, like, you know, if we make this movie for 10 million, we'll make this movie for $10 million with this actor, but we'll make it for $14 million with this actor. And meanwhile, like, I think this was even before like foreign became that important. Right. And it's like the two actors are talking about, we're not talking about like Will Smith versus some no name TV actor. We were talking about like people who you barely heard of. Right. So it was kind of like, what's the criteria, but, but also kind of viewing the move movies as a business and sort of seeing how those decisions are getting made on a business level. So it, it was all informative. I mean, the, the thing for me, the most informative thing about it, probably just in terms of my career was 
reading a lot of the scripts that were coming in every week. Yeah. And uh, kind of feeling after a period of time that the majority of them were not very good. Right. And feeling like I had ideas of my own and being a writer myself and always being able to, I always had an ability, I felt, to read other people's scripts and give notes on that kind of stuff. That's why I probably thought I would be a development exec first. Um, but kind but of, there are a lot of good writers that come out of script reading. That, that's, that tends to be one of the first jobs doing coverage mm-hmm. for at, at, at major studios or small or for producers or whatever. And yeah. you learn a lot by seeing how poorly some are written. And yeah. also it's 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 weirdly encouraging, not that you wish anybody, you know, <laughs> ill will with their projects. It's like good luck, I hope you get better, but you just recognize there are very few really, really good stories and really, really good scripts out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I also felt too at the time that you know, my my boss, this is before iPads and stuff, he'd go home every weekend with 15 scripts. And every executive is leaving every weekend with 15 scripts, and they have these big shoulder bags that they're wheeling out of the office. And there was just kind of a feeling like everybody in town is reading the same stuff. Right. Everybody's tired. And I looked at some of these people who were some of these executives at the time, and a lot of them have gone on to really big careers. Um, but I just felt like I don't know if that's what I want to do. And that was right. that. So in terms of sort of narrowing down the focus, I thought I wanted to be a studio executive, realizing that some of that job is not as creative as I thought it could be. Some of its corporate and business side of it and all that. And also just the amount of reading that it took and everybody kind of chasing the same five projects or the same five right. people. Something about that turned me off to that aspect of it for me. Yeah. So uh, at what point are you are you still writing all this time? Do you have your own projects going on, or are you does no, this I mean, take I'd a while? Written, I'd written some plays in college, and I'd written a couple things with my friend who had gone to Stage Door, who was that really prolific playwright. And I actually did a semester at NYU when I was at college. That was like my NYU, I did the NYU film class, Sight and Sound, and that was like my big film semester abroad was at NYU. Right, and so. I don't know if I was writing that. I don't know if I had time to write. Or maybe I wrote a play during that year. So what drove but, you to start getting involved in the writing? So I convinced that friend. Yes. So once I decided that I didn't want to be a studio executive, I convinced that friend to move from, and he was in New York doing coverage at the time. I convinced him to move to L.A. and we became writing partners. Ah. And we spent, and I don't know how exactly how that choice came to be, but I think we both felt like we wanted to be writers. Why aren't we doing this? And we should do it together because we have fun and we like doing it together. And we kind of became motivators for each other. Right. And um, so we spent like eight months working on a movie when he first got out here. And it was a really complex sliding doors type idea uh-huh. with like taking place in two different time periods. It was way t- for our first movie. We probably should have done something a lot simpler. Way too ambitious. And after those eight months, like we sent it to a few people. No one really responded. <laughs> and we were like, how have we spent it? And we, it, was, it was all math, like trying to figure out all these things at the time periods and how they intersect. We're like, we got to be doing something else. We're like, why aren't we writing TV? Because we lo- both of us liked the idea of being in a writer's room. We liked the idea of... Um, collaborating with other people and not just being the two of us alone in a room. And so, but in order to write, be a TV writer, um, you have to write, at the time, you have to write TV specs of shows that were already on the air. And we also right. thought maybe having that even structure would help us so that we are not just coming up with a crazy idea that's taking us way too long to write. So, uh, sidebar here, and we'll get back to that. How different is it now? Because uh, Cushell went through this with me as well, because he, he's been embedded in the business long enough now where he doesn't have to kind of do do that. He finds his next job because he's got a track record. Yeah. He, he doesn't know how to tell people coming up how to get into the business now because it's just you don't do that anymore. Well, I think Cushell's slightly wrong. 
about well, his career. What in, a surprise. <laughs> in his career, in, in terms of, Kushal still also like writes specs and does his own stuff, like writes pilots. No, I know, so but, he he's, has he's, new but he's not trying to break in necessarily. Right, but, yeah. but in terms of the way people view him, like I'm sure he has samples that he has written that people can read. Not He didn't intend for them to be samples, but you know, right. he, he wrote pilots that I think people read and say, oh, that we like this thing that we know about Bob and we like this thing right. that he wrote recently that so that sort of shows that he can write a family show. But is that still a, the way you think? I, is, look, I think it... If I were to sit down and watch, oh God, what is even popular now that hasn't gone off the air already? Let's say Modern Family. Okay, yeah. If I were to write a Modern Family spec, that's such a specific voice. If I were talking to you as a new writer, I would say I think that showrunner types probably want to see an original voice, Mm -hmm. uh, hear an original voice on the page. Um, So I I would say if you're going to write two samples, I would probably at least make sure that one of them is original. Be it a play or a short story or a pilot or something, and maybe you write one. Maybe you write a Modern Family too. But I would write the thing that feels like it's in the voice of the kinds of stuff that you want to be doing. So I have different writers that come to me and they say, "Well, I don't really know what I want to do. Should I be writing a, an Arrow or should I be writing uh, Goldbergs or should I be writing uh, Girls?" And it's like, what? Who do you think you are? Yeah, as a what, writer? Are you, what are you really I, good at? I think at, if you're yeah. going to write a spec, and I'm not saying everybody should write a spec as a young writer, but I do think it can show that you can write in somebody else's voice, and more importantly, can you capture that tone? Can you right. capture the tone of that show? Well, this and, is going back to I talked to Ken Levine, who um, uh, you know did that kind of very traditional thing with with David Isaacs when they when they teamed up. They didn't have YouTube, they didn't have a VCR. I don't think uh, they recorded on a cassette player. Um, I forget what what show it was. It might have been All in the Family. Oh, even before that, actually. It had to be much before that. Um, but they basically just beat for beat, you know, wrote out several episodes of, oh, this does this and this does right. that. And that hasn't changed. I mean, it's basically... Yeah, well, that's how we did yeah. it. So the first two things we wrote were a Malcolm in the Middle and a 70s show. There you go. And we got our hands on a few episodes, like four or five scripts of each. And we went through and we said, how many scenes does it have? Yeah. How much is the A story and how much is the B story? We knew enough of story to kind of understand that stuff. Right. And then we came up with our own stories that tried to emulate the story and the structure that they did on that show. Yeah. And Malcolm had only had like six episodes on the air when we wrote that. So it yeah. wasn't like it had been on for seven years at that point. But everybody's so, first looking for, uh, do you understand structure? Are you even writing in I mean, the, in I don't the I don't know how important specs are now compared to how they were 10, 15 years ago. I think by specs, I mean spec episodes of shows of that are already currently in the air. existing shows. I think, yeah. I think that there is value in having at least one of those in your repertoire, and, you know, just to show people. And I think it should be reflective of the kind of thing that you want to be doing. So if you want to be writing an hour-long drama, you shouldn't be writing like a crazy FX. Co- you shouldn't be writing Archer. Right, right. So, but if you want, but if you have an Archer sensibility, I think you should try to write some, you know, if you're going to be writing a spec and you feel like Archer closely matches your voice to some extent, um, write an Archer. Yeah. I, don't know if that, I don't know if Archer is the right example because you probably want it to be something that people know or are a little more with. mainstream. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You know, and and then you're so if you're going to have two samples, then they also can't be that different from each other because I think what everybody's trying to look for is like who is this writer? Like what what is their voice? So I think if you want an original thing and something that is another thing, you at least want them to sort of have some sort of correlation. No, good. Both that be makes comedies, sense. both be you know not a, both have a little bit of edge to them, something like that. Yeah. You know, I got a great Friends episode I'm going to put out there. That's yeah, still that I, great. it's on every day nine times a day. Don't yeah. tell me that's not no, current. No, that is not dated at all. Uh, wrote that with Bob's sister actually. Did, did you? Really? Yes, I did with Lisa. Um, you guys might want to update it a little bit, see if the references still hold. You don't think the uh, vibrating? <laughs> you don't think the vibrating pager B story is? Uh, I mean, no, I like is, it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't dro- even know how I we think would you guys are change that. that. <laughs>
Um, I don't know if that was good advice or not, but I, I do. Th- no, no, no. It's the, very good. The, the key to that advice is trying to figure out what your own voice is and yeah. what your own tone is, and it, whether that means you have two originals, two pilots, two whatever that aren't that aren't uh, episodes of shows that are already on the air. Maybe that's okay. I just think, and I, I, do, I talk to a lot of young writers about this stuff. I just think that it's important, especially when you're first going out there. And I'm not trying to like put you in a box or pigeonhole you, but especially with agents when they're looking to send you out for their first jobs, they want to at least have some idea of how to sell you to the town. And yeah. that, and that you have to have connection to to some tone and some point of view that already exists because unless you're just this spectacular wonderkind writer who's come up with a new form and a new take that nobody's ever seen before and it's obvious yeah you have to have a connection even now i feel like if that's the case you're probably gonna have to go out and do a bunch of videos on YouTube that's that. <laughs> right. That, that, you that, that create shows your people own that, work. Create yeah. your own work or like make your own short movie. I mean, Lena Dunham, he still started off with tiny apartments, tiny houses. What was uh, that little, thing called? Tiny furniture. Tiny furniture. Tiny furniture. <laughs> <laughs> there was well, something very small involved. <laughs> I knew it was tiny. Oh, yeah. But, you know, she started like that was proof of her voice by her writing and directing that movie. Well, I think that's that goes to the point of that there there almost isn't a traditional path for any of that anymore right. because that way exists. It's yeah. it's it's a big crapshoot, but it does give you complete control over the exact product that you want to put out. That she went and made a movie right. herself with her own visuals with exactly what she had in mind. Not everybody can do that and everybody knows how to do that. And it, a lot of times it, when they do do that, it turns out really, really bad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and you know the other thing that people like, people call me, and I, I sound like I'm this advice guru, but I actually do get a lot of people who people calling and well, asking sure. questions and stuff. The the one one thing that surprises me so much of the time is people tell me that they want to come to L.A. and be a writer, and I say, what have you written? And they don't, they don't actually don't have stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so the first advice I have for someone who wants to be a writer is you have to write stuff. And you can't just talk about writing. You can't say you have an idea that you're thinking about working on. You actually have to do the work. And you really have to be okay with being bad for a long period of time. And this is goes to almost everybody I've ever talked to because this is the thing I like to hear about, which is the path usually involves a ton of failures before – you know, amazing. You know, it's like my career has been the opposite, but we could talk. Oh, about okay. That. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You had a, the, the the success, and it's all been down. No, you're success. fine. You're doing fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, you 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 have to be you have to be okay with being at least mediocre for a long period of time well, before things start to really make sense. I'll tell you the other thing that you have to have, and this is the other thing I tell people when they ask me to read their stuff, mm-hmm. especially younger writers, is I will read your stuff, but I, most people, <laughs> but. Uh, you can't and, get... and, and Austin's address <laughs> yeah. is, no. uh, but you can't get defensive with me if I'm giving you my thoughts or my notes, right? Because that's also a very young writer thing, which is I had it when I won the Young Playwrights sure. Festival. Like I thought my first draft that I wrote on the page was like brilliant, and you, we will not change this one word. And then I remember <laughs> this. So this is actually something that happened with the Young Playwrights when I was a kid. I had a play that was 96 pages long, and by the time that we put it on, it was 56 pages, and we'd cut 40 pages out of it. And the first year that I did the festival, I thought. My words were gold, and we couldn't change anything. The second year, I learned the value of rewriting, mm-hmm. and and same thing with working with writers. You know, you really have if you want to be a writer in this town, you have to be able to hear the criticism. You have, it doesn't mean you have to agree with or completely listen and yeah, do all the notes. But parse but, out the stuff that actually 
can help your work. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, if, especially for me, it's like if I'm going to take the time to read something of yours and to give you my feedback, having been in this business a long time, I can't have you on the phone like yelling and disagreeing with me when I'm just <laughs> trying to be nice and giving you my thoughts as someone who's been doing it for a long time. Well, so, but, but, it's, but it's a very knee-jerk reaction, especially when you're a young writer, to defend everything that you do or to get angry and that kind of stuff. And I like the emotion and the passion of it. But there's also something, too, where if you get five or six people who, who give you similar notes but not the same notes to, to, to be able to figure out, oh, maybe there's something to this section that isn't working or maybe there's something about this character that people aren't connecting to if everybody has a problem with that character, even if their notes on how to fix right. it are different. Well, part of it is that just just sitting down – I don't know if you're this kind of writer. Sitting down to write can be – just so hard to just the physical act of making yourself doing it. So when you accomplish something like getting a first draft, it's it's such a huge thing personally to say, okay, I got this thing finished. And the first thing you have to do is take somebody's notes on yeah. what's wrong with it. Yeah. And you want it to be perfect. Obviously, yeah. you thought that everything you did connected until people start to you know, point out how ugly your baby is, right? And it's it's a it's an ego blow. It, yeah. That's a real. So, that's something writers have real trouble with, and why they give up so quickly. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I have. And why I'm podcasting? I have you know. different versions of that about through my career and pilots that get close to getting made, sure. and not getting made, and early on in my career when a pilot would get rejected, the depression that I would go into, and the different ways that I've learned to cope through therapy and through whatever to not. Uh, wallow in the sadness of it for too long, but I have certain. It's techniques impacted now. you that much when? when oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm because as much as I want to just treat it like a job and not get emotionally attached or involved, I can't. I can't help every single time that I go into something and putting it all. Try, you know, trying my hardest, putting myself out there, and by the time it's done, um, I'm really invested in it. Yeah, and then when it goes away. I, it, I, it, I take it hard. And some of them I take harder than others. But the only way that I've learned to cope is I always make sure to have at least two or three other things, other coals in the fire, other things percolating, other ideas I'm working on, maybe something else that I've already sold, just so that you just can't, you can't put it all on that one thing because it's so, there's so little rhyme or reason to a lot of the things that get picked up or don't get picked up. And I learned that when I only had one thing, it would really knock me out and it would knock me out for weeks. And it would like, I, I would not be able to work or function. And as a writer, you know, all you have is your ideas and your output. And so it's important to keep going and persevering. And part of that means not being so beholden to that one thing. Not taking it personally is probably the hardest thing for anybody in on any in any part of you entertainment you, or whatever. You it's, can't not take yeah. – if you care – and I think most people care. You sure. Can't, you can't not take it personally. There are some people who are more of those journeyman writers who can kind of just come in and treat it like a job and clock in at eight and clock out at four or whatever. And that that's they got their work done for the day. But even those people, I still feel like some of them feel burned when the thing doesn't go. I would think so, right? The hardest thing, and this gets more into the, the, the emotional side of it, is not having your self-worth wrapped up in validation from the industry. Yeah. And yeah. that is a very, very hard thing for for people who are like to be people pleasers, who have been told from an early age that they're talented and pretty and that everybody likes them and you are winning these contests and all that kind of stuff. Then when things start to not go your way, to not to not wallow in it, to not to not say maybe it's me and you know, so you gotta be able to find your own inner validation in other ways that don't connect to just the industry. Right. Not a lot of finger banging going on in the real world out there. It's not that well, easy. You're, you're getting banged. <laughs> That's I don't right. know where. <laughs> and it was never invited. There's it was a lot never... of yeah. There's a lot of ass banging happening to me. <laughs> 
Cronston uh, has big. Uh, well, let's get to that. Yeah, uh, where no, would you like um, to start? No, how did um, – so Jake in Progress, let's jump right to that because that was this kind of sp- – flurry of like success that came at uh, yeah. a... Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll get to it really quickly. So, our, my writing partner and I got staffed on our first TV show together when we were like 23, 24. Which was? Uh, it was called um, oh, wow. Glory Days. I can't believe I blanked on it. Yeah. And uh, it was a Kevin Williamson show for the WB when the WB was still around. And he had done Dawson's Creek at the time and there was uh, and he, you know, he was doing Scream and all those movies mm-hmm. and we were brought. He was on to, a very hot name, yeah. and we were brought on to be the two comedy guys on this one-hour drama. Uh-huh. Like that was our role, and it was supposed to be a light drama, kind of like a Dawson's Creek. But they realized that they had a lot of shows like Dawson's Creek on at the time, so they said to Kevin, "There's so many stories here. I'll make it fast." But they said to Kevin, "Like you know, what? Well, you do like the horror stuff and the murder mystery stuff. Why don't you just take the show that you did, keep all the same characters, keep all the same sets, but turn it into a murder mystery?" So suddenly he had this room full of like soft drama writers and these two comedy guys having to figure out how to do a murder mystery every week. Oh, wow. So that was. Kind Kind of a trial by fire. Uh, I won't tell all those stories, but once that show was end, that's that show, a little nuts to, was, to change something like that midstream. Yeah, midstream. So then, from that, we decided to write one more comedy spec or Mid Creek. I'm sorry. Nice. I'm gonna bump it. Yeah, no. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, we got we wrote one more comedy spec because uh, we really wanted to get on the comedy, and we got staffed on a show called Still Standing that was on CBS right after Everybody Loves Raymond. So we wrote on that for the first two years of that show together, and then in the middle of the second year, I created Jake in Progress. Wow. Now, where did that come from? Jake in Progress just came out of 24, had been on the air for a year or two at that point, and I just thought it would be funny to take all of the stakes of 24 and the, and the visual style of it and everything and apply it to a romantic comedy. Now, how, and, how r- remarkable was it in your mind, or was it? Did, did it just kind of come together really too easily, like, in like retrospect, click, click, click? Yeah, so, so what happened was I had this idea to do a romantic comedy version of 24 where each season was going to be one big day in the life of this couple. Right. So season one was going to be their first date. Season two was going to be their wedding day. Season three was going to be the birth of their first child. And you would put all the stakes of everything that could go wrong on that st- on that into a romantic comedy premise. And um, I sold it to 20th because I had kind of a little deal with 20th because I was already on Still Standing, which was a 20th show. And then we heard that John Stamos was interested in doing TV. And originally, I thought the lead was going to be like a 27-year-old Jew, <laughs> but, but like let's let's make it for I thought it was going to be me, you know. But like let's make it for uh, let's let's see if John Stamos is and he was interested. And then John Stamos got on board, and Brad Gray, who was his manager at the time, so suddenly it went from this like I'm a story editor on Still Standing to going to meeting with network presidents with John Stamos and Brad Gray, and 20th. And I and at the time. I thought, oh, this is what happens. Yeah, this is just the natural progression. <laughs> yeah. So you weren't intimidated by it. It was just like, oh, I, here's the next step. Well, I was excited by it, and I also felt like I, this is what I want to be doing, and so this is this feels right for me. That's what I thought at the time. And, yeah, I mean, and pinching, well, my, I mean, pinching myself a little bit. But, you know, and I'd been on Still Standing, which was a, a multi-camera comedy, and it was a very conventional multi-camera comedy, and I felt like that didn't really feel like my voice. Mm-hmm. And so I was excited to try to do something single-camera and romantic comedy-ish, which felt more like me, a little more Woody Allen-y, James L. Brooks. That was kind of the world that I wanted to be living in. So the instant validation that I got from that was, in retrospect, surprising. But at the time, I think I, it was just... I, yeah, it just Well, it, it just was happened. the goal. I mean, it was, it was the goal. you wanted to create your own show that yeah. was your voice that you had control over, So, and it happened. Right. So it, excited, right, but you embraced that, and you're like, okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and then I wrote it, and then they picked it up, and yeah. then we made the pilot, and then the presidents of ABC got fired, 
And then a new president came in and he said, uh, and he brought us into his office. I think this is before the upfronts. And he said, uh, I'm picking your show up for 13 episodes, but I want to lose the girl and I want to lose the 24 concept. <laughs> and so I said, the romantic comedy nature. And I was like, and the entire basic premise that you. Yeah, now remember, in, tw- in 24, around. it's all. Like the entire the pilot ended with them leaving to start their date with like all these loose threads that had started for the night. And he's like, but we'll keep the pilot. And I'm like, well, how can we keep the pilot? Like, this is literally part one of like this serialized storytelling. He's like, that's the problem. So at any rate, I'm like, so what's the show? And he's like, well, you know, like John Stamos dating girls in New York City. Who doesn't want to see that? And I was like, okay. I wish people could see the physicality of Austin doing the shucking and joking. He's like, hey, like, yeah, but for me, like 26, 27 years old, like he's giving me 13 episodes on the air and like, like, He's giving me he is giving me uh, a chance. And so then it became how can we take this one thing and turn it into something else? Yeah. As we're doing it. And he even didn't even believe we needed a second episode. And I was like, well, I still think we need a second episode that at least wraps up this night. And he's like, all right, fine. But I don't think you need it. And they ended up airing it eighth. (laughs) They didn't even air it together. (laughs) It was out of order. They aired them. Oh, that's just the beginning of the story. So that was so I had my own show. And yet having my own show, there was so much having to really turn it into something else entirely. And like the, the one guy who was the enemy on the date because he's her ex-boyfriend, they wanted to keep that guy. So within, I, made, I did like three or four episodes to get him from being the bad guy to the new friend. But then when they aired them all out to order, by episode two, he was his best friend. So like all the things that I thought were important, clearly they didn't think was important. And then it was just about sort of John Stamos working at this PR firm and dating women and applying some of my emotional baggage onto John Stamos, which is kind of the lesson that I've heard before, which is, um, you know, Right Yiddish cast British. I don't know if you've ever heard that expression <laughs> no, before. I haven't. That's fantastic. So you know that right Jewy and cast John Stamos, <laughs> and then it's not too Jewy. <laughs> so, but suddenly when John Stamos has my bad stomach and my neuroses and is popping Xanax and suddenly like that, it's endearing. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Yes, I can see that. Now, uh, along with all that, did you did you have any? Uh, difficulty in getting people to deal with you as a very young person running their show, own show for the first time. Did people trust you? Did you do you feel like you were able to step up in a way that, b- besides the network <laughs> executive I, who's um, like randomly just pulling levers? No, I think that there was there was well, how much of it is just being a showrunner in general, and how much of it is being the young guy the young guy in the room who's right. saying this is what we're doing. And I had because you're walking into a position as a showrunner that's almost all. Yeah, I mean, you're a manager. You're you're yeah. managing a group of people, and you're managing a group of creative people, and in many cases, very insecure people. Yeah, and and I who think need constant that, validation right. about what that what they're doing. So is good. I think if you're like, if I were to do it now, I think there were certain things that I would do differently, and I think that. But did you take to that right away, or did? I mean, did you feel natural having to what I, be in a position of telling people literally what, what to I do? What I felt was I was finally utilizing all different aspects of my personality. Yeah. So what I felt was and what I knew about myself was I never just wanted to be a writer. So I loved being in the editing room and I loved being in casting and I loved going down a set and figuring out how to a fix in the moment. So I liked all those different aspects of it. But within that, I think there were things with, you know, how do you run a writer's room and how do you make all the writers feel like they're included and that they're valued and that we're all contributing the same. And if you have a disagreement with an actor on set, what the what's the best way to handle that where there's not hurt feelings and um politically with the producers and the network how do you play the game and this is true with anything that i've learned with all the pilots i've done since then how do you give them what they want still be a team player but also still hold on to the things that you believe in without Jeez. being difficult so 
every step of that was a learning process and a challenge, and I think that I was better with some of those challenges than yeah. others. Do you, now, are you able to have some sort of real life outside of this? During that time? Yes. I mean, probably not a lot. Yeah. Probably not a lot. Uh, were you involved at that point? Did you have... I, were yes, you married? My, my, no, my wife was my girlfriend at that point. Okay. So, but, so that stayed in <laughs> <laughs> Somehow well, we, that t- we took intact. a break at one point, oh. but I'm trying to remember where in the process that yeah. was. It just but, seems with that much going on, and it takes so much mental faculty. I, I mean, writing itself, just being a staff writer and being in a room and going off and getting an assignment, and, and, and the long days that a lot of people don't realize that you guys put in on those things. Yeah, and, I and, mean, it's and, not digging ditches. We all know that. But there is there is a mental exhaustion to trying to come up with perfect line, perfect joke, deal with and then, notes. And then on top of that, yeah, even more than any of that, so all of that stuff plus you have producers who are giving their notes. Right. Then there's three levels of notes. There's the producer notes, the studio notes, and then the network notes. And sometimes none of the three are the same. Yeah. So they, none I, remember, of them correspond. I remember that our producers would give us notes that would make us rewrite a script for two or three days that would then go to the studio and they'd say, why did you change that thing from the uh, outline? We like that. And then you got to go back and then the network would say, well, we so, you know, that's a constant dance that you're doing. And is somebody and, like Stamos at a level where he wants to have input and he's, did he? No, Stamos was a producer on the show. And Stamos and yeah, I started. he had a name on the credits. He had a name uh, on the credits and he took, uh, to his credit, honestly, besides his credit, his actual <laughs> credit, to his credit, he took a chance on like a 26 or 27 year old kid. Yeah. And he was meeting with everybody. And he heard my 24 ideas like I'm going to go with the kid. And so that show and this is what I've learned 10 years later, that show wouldn't have happened the way it happened without him being involved from the very beginning. Uh, My chest is tight just talking about your and it's impossible now after hearing that that this actually lasted two years. I mean, it's crazy. But that's but it's not atypical. I mean, this is the way shows get on the air. It's magical. When things connect and everything works. It's magical that, it, that anything gets on it the even air. even gets there. And then it's even more magical if something gets on the air and is actually good. That's insane. And, and look, there are episodes of Jake in Progress that we did that I'm really proud of. Right. And I actually think there were certain things that were, like, ahead of its time. But, and then it goes and you got some nice response from people. I mean, I, th- I, I remember. I mean, I watched it, and, and, and there were some critics that were kind to it. I mean, it wasn't, like, roundly disregarded no, or anything. No, I no. Think, I think part of the frustration was or my frustration was it wasn't first of all we never got to follow through with the original conceit right. which felt like a more unique conceit to me there have actually been a few shows since then that have tried to do that conceit right um so i felt like we never really got our due with that so it was never really the show that i had initially imagined i feel like by airing them out of order and also at the time abc had no other like single camera comedies so a lot of times we were airing our episodes back to back so that's another thing that starts to factor in which is What's your time slot? How are, you know, so there's, we, we were on Thursday nights, Thursday nights on co- like at ABC oh, at eight God. o'clock at night was another dead time slot. So there's all these other things that are out of your control. Right. So that's another lesson that you have to learn along the way is you can only do what you can do. And then there's so many things that, are, that aren't. Here. What the hell makes you want to stay in this damn business? So, this is why I'm in therapy. This is why I'm in therapy. I feel like I'm, I'm keeping you too long and, and, and we've only just scratched the surface because you have gone on. That's not the end of the story. <laughs> all right. This was fun. Thank <laughs> Oh, thank you. I leave in the middle of my Jake in progress misery. <laughs> Did we cover everything in that? Because you said you could Not talk an all. hour about that. Not at all. I mean, no. what are we missing? What are, what are the? No, I mean, the, the, the biggest thing was just simply how you have to change, having to change on the fly and how you start off with this one idea and what you believe to be a clear vision of what that is. And then you're getting a show made, but literally you've started a writer's room and you're like, all right, so now what are we going to do? Well, so so on the heels of that, how how difficult was it to have to deal with that show going away or was it in some ways a relief 
uh, because it no, wasn't exactly no, what. No, it didn't feel like a relief. It no. felt like it felt like a disappointment, and yeah. it felt like a loss. And it it also again, I, I put my heart on my sleeve with all this stuff. So yeah. you know, when when it wasn't as re- received as great as like, we wanted it to, or but we still got that second season. Um, no, it, it was it was again that was sort of licking the wounds and then kind of figuring out what's next. Yeah, and what was. I think at the time I was under a deal at twentieth, so I think it was back to pilots. And, yeah. and so, I, how much are you? And I wrote on a, I wrote on another show because I was under that deal. This is another fascinating story, a show that got picked up and then never went. That I was a writer on, uh-huh. um, but these are just interesting stories, like the, how these things happen and then don't happen. But I, I don't know. We, I don't know how much time we want well, to spend I, on this. What, what's interesting to me is how much work there is in doing work on something that nobody ever sees. Yeah. Uh, so that's been most of my career. Since then. And and pitching. I mean, uh, you probably have been and are pitching constantly, and that's its own separate hell and and universe yeah. and art. So I've probably sold twelve or fourteen pilots since Jake in Progress, and on top of that, I've sold four or five movies. During that, that and that none of them, have and gone none into of those pilots have been. I've been on TV shows too. I wrote on Gossip Girl, right? And I, and I had a musical that I wrote that was on Broadway last year. No, I wanted, to and get I did to the that. live sound music. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I've had other things, but in terms of like pilots and stuff that go, I have not had another pilot made since. And then. that's kind of the remarkable thing is that you can actually make a living, uh, yeah. a pretty good living on stuff that nobody ever <laughs> gets to see, right. um, which is a strange concept. It's a strange concept, and it's also why it's so frustrating. Right. Because you, you know, you spend three to six months on one of these projects, maybe more, and um, and then all of a sudden, just one day, it just goes away. Yeah. And it's like because one executive read it and was having a bad day and said no. And or, you really can't. And most of the time, you can't revisit that. You just have to write that off. And yeah, say, there's a weird thing that sort of happens when one network passes on a pilot for whatever reason. There's kind of a stink on it. And you could try to set it up other places, but I think the other places are uh, wrapped up in their own development. Mm-hmm. And I think they think, well, maybe there's got to be something wrong with it. If this place passed, we don't really want the other people's leftovers. There's certain, there's a few famous stories over the years, like CSI, I think, was developed at ABC and then went to CBS. So like every once in a while, like one will happen that will become a thing. Right. But more often than not, you, once, a, once a network passes on a thing, it's basically dead. All right. So let's talk in... in uh just like quick sketches here. Yeah. Uh, Gossip Girl, good experience? Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Again, body language, body language changes slightly. Uh, interesting. All right. You, it was a learning experience. <laughs> learning experience. No, very interesting to be honest. How does yes. a, how old are you now? Or how, I just, I, I'm 38. Uh, okay. So how does a 30-something uh, Jewish <laughs> male yeah. write for that voice. Snarky. Yeah. <laughs> bantery. That's all it takes. <laughs> Snarky and bantery. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, you know, you, you, you kind of... <laughs> yeah, again, I wish you could see the body language going on. There's also, there's just this thing going on. Well, you, you, you could... It was less the, the voice and the dialogue that was hard. The harder thing was learning the, the structural template of that show. Right. So that show has four or five storylines going on in every single episode, and every single storyline has a twist in every act. <laughs> right. So <laughs> learning learning um, season-long arcs and learning um, how to be so plot-heavy and in, in that kind of way, which isn't necessarily the way my mind works. I'm kind of, um, I like to think of things from a more emotional story place than a, you know, we had jokes on the show that we should call the show at one point the coincidentalist because it's everybody... <laughs> So much of that show was everybody overhearing a conversation they shouldn't be hearing. 
And so, but that's so girls. They do that. So gossip. Oh, yeah. yeah, girls are always overhearing other girls. <laughs> so, but that that was the biggest learning curve for me on that show was was learning how to think in that six act structure, soapy, dramatic y kind of way. So, which, okay, so you weren't intimidated at all by the characters or age no. or their point of view, but but just learning that. Yeah, structure. no, the, the stuff, and I think I think that's part of why they said we think you could maybe do this was because dialogue wise I felt like I had a handle I, I needed a little help with like some of the who are the hot fashion labels right now and what's the club they're going to <laughs> right, and right. like uh, you know there, there was a lot of very wealthy high end Upper East Side lingo so I, I needed some help with some of that kind of stuff but in terms of the snark and the emotionality that I was fine with it, Got was, it, covered. it, was, it was more of like who's screwing over who and whose <laughs> d- business is trying to take over this person's business while this killer is lurking in the shadows. It's more of that kind of stuff. Is it hard to just be a hired gun after you've had a little taste of what it's like to, to run a show? Uh, I felt like that uh, in my 20s after the show. I think that as time has gone on, um, first of all, it's so common now. It, it, people have their own show, and then the next year they're writing on somebody else's right, thing. Right. Uh, so I think back then there was maybe a little bit of, but that's ego. You know, there was ego associated with that. Like, how can I go work for someone else now that I've done my own thing? Uh, to me, it's just about, and I think about this now when I talk to my agents about staffing or something like that. It really just comes down to: is it a show that I like, and the, the people that are nice people to be around? What's, but but I don't. I think you. I think you, as to have a career in this business, mm-hmm. unless you're Chuck Lorre or one of two or three other people, you have to be fluid enough to go from your thing to other people's things and back and forth. And again, that kind of goes back to that idea of making sure you have different, you know, coals in the fire. Right. Which is like I have no problem now going on somebody else's show as long as I still have the ability to develop my own stuff at the yeah. same time. How many, how, I mean, how many balls do you have in the air, do you think, most of the time? Several. I mean, yeah. Several, because I usually have one or two TV pilot things going. I usually have a movie thing or two percolating, and now I have some theater stuff at the same time. So, And I have a whole board now at home, and I have lots of ideas, so I right. always have lots of things. Kind are, of, you, um, do you, do you, are you, do you have trouble f- focusing on one at a time? Do you get bored by something relatively quickly and, and have to go work on something else? Is, uh, are have, you better when you have multiple things going on? I have trouble on? writing two scripts at the same time. Yeah. If, if, if something is an outline stage, if something's an idea stage and I'm writing something, that's okay. Oh, wow. But, and, and I can, I can kind of, I can kind of um, compartmentalize in that way. So I can kind of spend those hours on this, writing the script and then spend a little time on this other thing or read that book that I wanted, whatever. But yeah, actually, r- the physical act of writing two scripts with dialogue and characters at the same time—that's harder. That's—it's so immersive. I mean, I can see that you yeah. really do have to kind of keep but, yourself focused. But there's in kind that. of a way that I've sort of figured out how to do it, where it kind of works out. Where as I'm writing this script, I'm pitching this other idea. So just to make sure that the different things are happening at once. Right. Um, I, I hate to gloss over it, but I, no, again, okay. I feel like I, I, the... Your, first... your viewers have turned off no, no, no. long, long time ago. Uh, uh, listeners, uh, that's okay. <laughs> I know, you're a TV guy. Uh, first date. I mean, it's kind of the glorious that this thing happened for you uh, in a way, I don't want to say full circle because that sounds no, like your, kind of your career is over. Um, but... <laughs> The fact that you are were... something I don't. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing is just a lead up as an intervention of sorts. Thank you. Yes, your career in show business is over as of today. I knew it was just a matter of time. Almost anyone who has appeared on this podcast <laughs> believes that. Actually, um, w- did you have 
the concept for that in your back pocket for a long time? No. So interestingly, I have two friends who are musical theater writers. Um, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and for years, we would just get together and have lunches and kind of talk about different ideas. And they would talk about the stuff they were working on. And they were really Disney guys. So they were doing a lot of stuff for Disney theme parks, for Disney cruises. They had done like some Disney directed DVD movies. And they had also been spending a lot of time working, uh, doing a movie, uh, a musical adaptation of the movie Secondhand Lions that uh, into a stage show. And they had been wanting to write something that felt a little bit more contemporary, that felt a little bit older and funnier. And so one day, like early 2010, we just sat down and we're like, you know, we've spent, spent all this time talking about ideas. Should we write a musical together? <laughs> and for me, part of it, I mean, literally with all these pilots that I've written and sold, you do them enough times, it literally becomes the definition of insanity. You do the same <laughs> thing over and over again and expect a different result. Right. And it didn't matter if I was writing a half, a multi-camera, a single camera, an hour long, a cable show, a network show, big stars attached, nobody attached. They all had the same end results. But the thing that I hadn't done in a long time is go back to theater. And I really felt like it would just be fun to write a musical. There was no other agenda behind it. There was no idea of selling it or putting it on Broadway. And But how freeing was that? Just to go, okay, I'm just going to do this fun thing with these friends yeah. that I know who I respect and their was, talent. And it was actually one of the friends who had the idea, he reminded me of this the other day, that he always liked the original idea behind Jake and Progress, which was kind of a real-time date scenario. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what if we did a real-time date scenario but kind of made it a musical? Mm -hmm. And then that came, then we started expound, exp expounding off of that and thinking of, you know, well, what if um, there's all these, there's a couple on a date and what we're really hearing are all the voices in their head that we hear when we're on a date with somebody. Right, right. So, you know, something happens that suddenly their best friends, they're chiming in on the date or their ex-girlfriend or their therapist or whatever. And that turned it into a theatrical conceit. Yeah. And then we just had fun writing and we talked about all kinds of bad dating stories that we had and what are things, what are examples of things that are sort of true to every first date, the first impressions, the awkward pause, the check. And we kind of figured out ways to musicalize all that. And so we, we wrote this thing pretty quickly, and then we did one reading of it in New York uh, towards the end of 2010, which is a, it's called 29-hour reading, which is the actors come in on Monday. You have 29 hours to work with them over the course of the week, and they learn all the songs, a lot of times learning the music, and you get a little time with them uh, to go over the scenes, and I directed it. And they stand in front of music stands for two hours, and they do your show. Right. And my friends, because they had a few connections in the musical theater world, invited 50 or 60 people to this reading that we did with some Broadway actors and we got a, a few theaters and several producers who said they were interested off of that first reading. Wow. And one of the producers who was interested were the people who had just done Memphis on Broadway that had just won the Tony or maybe it hadn't won it yet I can't remember. And they had started Memphis in Seattle because a lot of shows start out of town right. before they eventually end up in New York and they said should we see if this theater, the Fifth Avenue Theater which is a famous theater in Seattle where a lot of shows have started um, would be interested in maybe doing something with their show and we're like alright. So they sent it to the Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue said yeah Let's do a three-week developmental workshop. So we did this three-week developmental workshop with them in 2011. That turned into a full-scale production that they did in one of their smaller theaters, like a 500-seat theater in 2012. Had this, like, three, four-month sold-out run there. And from that, they, they decided to move it to Broadway. So it was kind of this – in terms of musical theater, like most musicals, the gestation period yeah. is, like, six to eight years. Yeah, and Our, develops in, in many different places right. before it finally so we, gets there. I mean, from, from kind of Genesis to Broadway was, like, three and a half years. And again, it was 
it was a small show. It was a small show. It was yeah. seven people in one set. And I kind of thought, best case scenario, we would play off Broadway and be one of those, like, I love you, you're perfect, now change things. Right, right. That's, that and then runs for yeah. a long time. But because of Broadway financial models, which is a whole other area I could get into with <laughs> right. you, that I've learned about during this process, that actually <laughs> off-Broadway doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. Right. And when you have seven characters in a six-person orchestra, it's just too big to sustain off-Broadway. Right. So, and there's a lot of reasons to sort of brand something a Broadway show to then get touring and licensing and all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, it just this thing that started off as just a fun little thing between us three friends became a Broadway show. That's kind of great. And, and and that's, again, a learning experience because, you, like you said, you know everything else kind of felt like it was rote at some point. You were doing yeah. the same. And here was this a whim, basically, that just becomes this thing. Yep. Um, you kind of want to yep. find that again. That's your new drug now, right? <laughs> well, well, now that's... How do I find <laughs> that, that, that little... It happened this past year because I, that, I took that opportunity... And then I said, well, look, I've been wanting to direct for a long time, but I've been afraid of where to put the camera. <laughs> Literally, it's not like talking to actors. Right? It's just, does the camera... Really? You mean your Punky Brewster experience didn't <laughs> you give think, you encouragement? You would think. So I got the DP from Punky Brewster on the phone. <laughs> Make it up to him. Uh, yeah. I said, listen, buddy, can you help me out? Uh, Brandon, sadly, was not with us any longer, oh. so we couldn't invite Brandon into the process. But I, I was able to get... So in terms of getting pilots made, I, I got a studio and a producer to give me money to go out and shoot a pilot that I directed. Um, so I did that this past year, and that was another thing to kind of change the method so it's not just writing a pilot. Absolutely. And that was a great experience, too. And now, because of the musical thing, and I started doing TV shows with different... I just did I had just did a TV show with John Legend for Showtime. I just sold one with Christina Aguilera to ABC Family. So suddenly I'm in this, like, musical well, you, world you now. you did the Sound of Music And I did the live book. Sound of Music. The adaptation, yeah. right? Yeah. So suddenly that's opened up new avenues in the theater world, too. So now I have a bunch of kind of theater projects percolating. And theater, you know, it just... Comparing theater to TV and all that stuff, not only the fact that that thing got made, but just going every night and seeing it with a live audience and hearing the reactions and being in a preview period where you are changing things every single night. Yeah. There's something about it that's very alive and very electric, and there's a lot of energy to it. And so, dude, it's stage door manner just grown up. Yes, the amount of finger banging I got during <laughs> the Broadway show. Thank you. This yes. is what I've been waiting for. This is the way we bring it I all mean, together. I mean, you cannot believe how much finger banging is going on Broadway. It is rampant. Rampant fingering up and down those blocks. Again, 48, I, 47, not, 46. I'm giving you so many ideas. They're right there in front of your yes. nose. If you don't do finger banging the, the musical, musical, I don't know what you're doing. Only if there's an exclamation point along <laughs> well, with it. Duh. Yeah. I'll call, uh, I'll call up my friends and see if we can get on the first song right now. <laughs> uh, are you a happy man? Wow, that's a really... <laughs> you want to end on that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> well, this past Friday, yes. uh, at my mom's condo, uh, there was actually a happiness workshop that took place. With we had a couple uh, family, a couple friends come in and conduct this workshop on what it means to be happy and how to, can you be happy in your life. And we had a bunch of friends come in and uh, learn some tools to be happier. Um, I think is this an issue with you? Uh, yes. Yeah. Re uh, uh, recognizing when things are going well, or just or just understanding what happiness. Is supposed to mean, you know. My therapist used to joke that I have anhedonia, um, which was the original title for Annie, Annie Hall, Hall, right? Which is an inability to experience happiness. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't think that's quite true. I think that I ha I have happiness. I think that I can go negative, and I think that I have a tendency to look at the darker side of things, or you know, I, I, just compare, talk about it in terms of the pilot process. You know, it's like. 
on the one level, you can say, like, you sold this pilot to this person, to this network, and you have all these amazing people involved. That's amazing, and you're getting paid to write. On the other hand, you can say, but it's not this, but it's not that, but this didn't happen, but it didn't become this. So it's really the prism that you choose to look at things through. And I think that um, I Where does that come from for you? Do you is that probably some, my dad? Do you recognize that as his? Yeah, my da- my so my dad passed away. Why, three, uh, my dad passed away three years ago. Oh, okay, and uh, thank you. And um, I think that my dad had a had a kind of work ethic and a sort of a nothing is ever good enough thing. And I think well, he, you were in the wrong line at graduation. I mean, right, that's yes. there's a there's an example of that. Yes, and I think he had that a lot in his own career. Like yeah. no matter what he had, he always wanted something more. Mm-hmm. And I think he a little bit of grass is greener. And I think that you know part of that is good because it means that you constantly are striving and trying to achieve. I think the other part of that is it doesn't allow you to sit with what you have and be appreciative of what you have. And so I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of my therapy and a lot of my work, I'm not, you know, like one of those new agey people, but I think a lot of the work is is learning how to appreciate what you have and living in the moment more. And I think my kids, I have two kids now. I think those kids have given me a lot of that happiness. And again, not trying to have as much of your happiness rooted in work validation because I've had, you know, I had a lot of early success and then I've had a lot of, luckily I've steadily worked my entire career. Right. I've always had jobs. I've always gotten paid. I've always had things going on. Um, I think there was a moment early on in my career where I thought I'm going to be this guy. And I think, you know, expectations are another thing that can lead to unhappiness. Well, I, I, I think that just listening to this path that we just have gone through, the fact that you had this kind of flurry of of that kind of success at a young age is probably a really good thing, to and, and that you stayed with it, that it didn't drive you away <laughs> when things didn't go the way that you wanted them to, because you've you've kind of got the hard stuff out of the way. Not that you've cracked the code necessarily, but now that you have a family and you've got the kids and you start to understand you know, that there are other things that you can appreciate yeah. more, and you had this joy of this Broadway show come together in a way that that you weren't even thinking about trying. Right. Um, and also, you start to recognize the longer that you do it, too, that it's a ma- it's cliche, but it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. And the more you play compare and despair, reading Deadline or Variety, where you're looking at what the other guy has, that's kind of a losing game. And I think that early success, then coupled with a lot of you know, disappointing rejections, uh, I think that brought, a lot, brought on humility and brought mm-hmm. on... Um, an, an appreciation for more things. So I still have moments. I mean, I had a pilot at Amazon this past uh, that I worked on really hard for months with a, a, a big international director a few months ago, and we spent so much time. I did like ten or twelve drafts, and I thought that thing was gonna gonna get, gonna get made. And then they called like three days before Christmas, and we're like, "Sorry, it's not happening." Like, and that wrecked me for a couple weeks. So it's not. It's still there. It's, it still exists. You still want these things. You care about these things. If you're an artist who cares, it's hard to lose that. But you can. But I think within that, you have to find balance and you have to realize that. If you didn't have said that to some extent, then you wouldn't have some things to drive you just to, you know, move on to the next step. Yeah. But but to let that linger, yeah, that could that can eat you alive. Yeah. You. Do you, you? I mean, I'm. I don't know you, um, <laughs> but you seem like you got your act together. You seem like you know you're you're grounded and you're relatively you know with it. Unless you've just got a really great way of hiding some terrible dark stuff. All of, no, I don't know if I get too dark. I mean, I get I get down I get down on myself. I'm hard on myself. Yeah, but oh, that's okay. But I but I think it, it again. It's also like I it also drives me, and I 
anytime that rejection happens, I think I should just uh, move to Mexico and open a shrimp shack. That's a little <laughs> fantasy my wife and I have. Neither of us cook, but really, but we like the idea of, you know, a place with chips and guacamole and just really good grilled shrimp and a margarita. Like, that sounds very, like, sounds like a nice, lovely place. Does it sound terrible? No, it does not sound no, terrible. I feel like our life might be happier after this happiness <laughs> workshop where you talk about your intention. My intention is to open a shrimp shack. Uh, Either but, that or that's the next musical. I'm just Shrimp saying. Shack the musical? Shrimp Shack. You, you are a, a, a plethora. It's, it's a sequel to Finger Bang. Yes. <laughs> Not sure how those two are connected. Well, I kind of know. Yeah, but, I think you do. <laughs> at any rate, uh, point being that, but I still really love ideas too. And so when I get when that next idea comes, I I somehow whatever that rejection ship that happens each time. And look, if you're going to be a writer or an actor or anybody in this business. It's going to be a roller coaster. There's going to be ups and downs. You're going to have your share of highs and lows and rejections and all that kind of stuff. But somehow I, I'm able to lick the wounds, get excited about the next idea and the next project and do it again. Oh, now there's our uplifting note. We will not end on finger banging. We will end on that. How, why isn't finger banging an uplifting note? <laughs> all right. Then we just officially ended on finger banging as well. We tied somehow tied them all together. This is the magic of what you do here. <laughs> it really is. Get a monkey. Get a monkey! This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.